I think there always has been and there will continue to be a need for nursing. If you think about the profession of nursing, nurses touch your lives at the beginning when you're born. They interact with your lives as you're trying to stay healthy and they deal with end of life care. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state of the art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome retired U.S. Public Health Service Rear Admiral Dr. Carol A. Romano. Dr. Romano is the Dean of the Graduate School of Nursing at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. She has extensive experience working at the National Institutes of Health and has served in a variety of leadership positions in the Public Health Service in the Office of the Surgeon General. She is board certified in nursing informatics and as an advanced nurse executive. You can learn more about her bio on wardocspodcast.com. In this episode, Dr. Romano talks about the roles the Public Health Service plays in improving the health, safety, and well-being of the nation. She also describes the critical roles nurses play in the federal healthcare systems and explains how the USU Graduate School of Nursing provides uniquely qualified nursing professionals with the knowledge, skills, and abilities to accomplish operational mission success. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired U.S. Public Health Service Rear Admiral, Dr. Carol A. Romano to WarDocs. Carol, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure to be here. Dr. Romano, you received your nursing degree from the Geisinger School of Nursing in Pennsylvania and later a Bachelor of Science in Nursing. What were the factors that motivated you to go into nursing? When I was in high school, I was always interested in science and service. And about that time, the American Nurses Association was advocating for advanced degrees in nursing. And so for me, it seemed that nursing was a practical career. It could help me take care of myself, my family, and it could help me grow professionally. I was not really able to afford college. So I decided to go to Geisinger Medical Center, which was a three-year diploma school. And my goal was to work full-time and then go to school part-time and earn my graduate degrees. And that's exactly how it worked out. When I graduated, I went to the National Institutes of Health to work as a clinical nurse. And while I worked full-time, NIH reimbursed my tuition when I went to school part-time for my undergraduate, my graduate, and my doctoral degrees. Well, you had an amazing tenure at the NIH Health Clinical Center, and you spent almost 40 years there. But one thing that interested me was in 1976, you helped and designed one of the first computerized medical information systems. Tell us about the first electronic health record systems and your role in pioneering health informatics. At NIH, their mission was research. So they were interested in data and being able to extract data. So it made sense to move into exploring the computer technology and the electronic health record. I believe that we were about the fourth hospital in the country to have an electronic medical record. But our definition of the medical record was really the full package. We had order entry, physician order entry. We had laboratory and x-ray and pharmacy, all the departments. But what was really important to us was that there was a strong nursing component to that system. So part of my role was to help clarify and define what information represents the practice of nursing. 
And in doing so, we had to translate that to computer screens for documentation of assessment, for describing patient evaluations and nursing care plans, and that kind of interaction with the rest of the health team members. I think it was pretty avant-garde that we actually looked at integrating the outpatient medical record and the inpatient medical record, and then creating all that data that would then serve in a repository that could be later extracted for research. My role in not only helping to design that nursing component, but it also involved working with all the other departments and disciplines in the hospital so we can follow the flow of information from a patient's admission to all the different departments and services that the patient uh, tenure touched. Alongside of that, we had to develop uh, education and training programs to help people use the technology, not only nurses, but doctors and dietitians and pharmacists, et cetera. And then finally, when we had to turn the switch from paper to electronic records, we called it Go Live. It was about being the 24-hour support for people on the units to help them with their questions and work out the bugs for this new electronic system. And it wasn't about implementing just technology. It was really about revolutionizing the information flow throughout an organization. It was a huge change process that we were experiencing. We had to rewrite policies for how we give medications because the way we delivered medications and documented them were different. So it really was a huge experience in organizational change and kind of moving us to the next generation. But remember, this was in the mid-70s, and personal computers didn't even hit the scenes till the 1980s, where people were commonly using computers at home. So this was really something unusual, foreign, and difficult for people, so it required a lot of support. But I was just really very fortunate to have the opportunity to be in the beginning of this information technology explosion. So one of the things that sometimes bothers clinicians and health practitioners is that it seems like the health record is set up towards making billing easier and not necessarily focusing on providing care to the patient. How do you balance those things between making it easy to code and bill for what you do versus making it really easy to take care of the patient well? That's a real big challenge in implementing this technology. I believe what's critical here is to have nurses and clinicians involved in the design process of these systems so that it supports the way they practice rather than the technology dictating the practice for health professionals. So it's really like two cultures clashing, the technology culture and the professional practice, which is really hands-on and intuitive and less concerned with dotting the I's, crossing the T's, cha-ching, a total can come up for a bill. But it's equally important, though, that that information be collected for the opportunity to, to evaluate the effectiveness and the outcomes of care. So the technology provides a little bit of rigidity that we're a little uncomfortable with because we don't usually document that way. So yes, I think there's an interest in billing, but there's also an interest in the way we structure the information to be able to extract and help inform, if you will, future decisions about the outcomes of healthcare. In a paper record system, we could call it a data cemetery because there's a lot of data that's written on papers, but nobody can ever take it out and say, maybe hidden in that data are really the answers to what causes certain conditions or what actually 
helps people to get better. And so the technology allows us to extract that information. And yes, it has the advantage of billing. And that's usually one of the main reasons that organizations start the technology. But by having clinicians involved in the design, they can actually leverage that technology to make their practice better. So we've interviewed many guests that have been in uniformed service, but you're our first guest to have been in the U.S. Public Health Service, and you retired as a rear admiral. Tell us briefly about your path to joining the U.S. Public Health Service and its mission and role. Well, first of all, the Public Health Service Commission Corps has the mission of protect, promote, and advance the health and safety of our nation. And it's one of the eight uniformed services. A lot of people don't know about it. I think it's one of the best kept secrets. But the Commission Corps in the Public Health Service is comprised of 11 different health professional categories. So there's no enlisted category. They're all health professionals, doctors, nurses, veterinarians, engineers, pharmacists, dietitians, scientists, environmental health engineers, and health administrators. With that interprofessional perspective, they advance the public health of the nation. My path in the public health service actually started when I was at NIH. I was a clinical nurse for 15 years before I really learned enough about the public health service to want to engage and become commissioned as an officer. And so when I finished my graduate degree and the timing was right, I actually had a lot of friends who were in the commission corps who talked about it. So I was commissioned. And I think it's one of the best decisions I made because the public health service actually has officers in 30 different agencies across the federal government, mostly in the executive branch of government and mostly in health and human services. But we also have nurses in the Bureau of Prisons and the Marshal Services, et cetera. One of the, I think, exciting pieces about the public health service was the opportunity to work with all these different health professionals. It's really an experience, if you will, in not practicing in a silo of your profession. Public health happens to be more integrated. My experiences, I think, in terms of how my career path went, I was involved a lot in informatics, which gave me the opportunity to work with Indian Health Service and Health Resources Administration and people who were dealing with informatic issues. I had a long career at the National Institutes of Health, but for I guess all practical purposes, I actually changed positions frequently. I went from a clinical nurse to someone who coordinated outpatient research studies to director of quality assurance and marketing to information management and eventually the deputy chief information officer and the senior advisor for informatics. Because I was in the commission core, I actually had the profession of arms and the opportunity to increase in rank. Eventually, I was selected to be the chief nurse of the nursing component of the public health service, and that was when I was promoted to a flag officer. The chief nurse of the public health service actually serves as the chief nurse of the United States, if you will, works out of the office of the Surgeon General. In that role, I had the opportunity to work with the chief nurses of Army, Navy, Air Force, VA, and the Red Cross coming together so that we could deal with joint federal nursing issues related to practice and the recruitment of nurses and some of the issues that nursing across all of the services and Red Cross and VAs that we all share. Let's talk a little bit about one of those times where you really rely on the coordination of interagencies and the different services. You were deployed 
multiple times to support hurricane assistance. And specifically in 2005, we had Hurricane Katrina devastating New Orleans. How was your role in the public health service in that disaster relief? And how were you able to coordinate with all of those agencies to ensure that things went the way that we planned them to go? Let me backtrack. The year before Katrina, there were multiple hurricanes in the Southeast. And I did have the opportunity to deploy in that environment to set up sort of a center where we triaged people to deploy to the different communities and provide assistance. I think that experience prompted my orders during Katrina. I got a call from the Surgeon General's office and they said, we have an assignment for you. We don't know if it could be accomplished, but we want you to try and we want you to get it done in 48 hours. I said, okay, what is it? (laughs) And they asked me to set up a hotline to recruit health professionals to be federalized and then to deploy to assist during Katrina. Now, that really hadn't been done before. Volunteers were really civilians in the community, but this was health professional volunteers. So we had to set up a hotline in four different cities where people could ask questions and let us know that they were interested. We also had to set up a website and then with television communications to let people know that we were seeking health professional volunteers to come down to deploy to the Katrina site. And it required our coordination with multiple agencies to set up security for the websites because we were doing applications to federalize these people as federal unpaid volunteers and to then coordinate with the Assistant Secretary for Emergency Preparedness and Response because once we got the volunteers, then we handed them off to the Secretary for Preparedness and Response Office, who then would provide orders and get these people deployed. We had to make sure that they had clearances and that they were vaccinated appropriately to go into these areas. What was exciting about that is that we actually did accomplish it in 48 hours. And then I think the hotline and the website we maintained for about 10 days. It was exciting and it was also exhausting. I think what's important to realize during emergency responses is that the secretary of HHS has a secretary operational center or command where there's representatives from all the agencies who are getting information and communicating and staying in touch. And so our initiative in the Surgeon General's office was part of that, maintaining the communications. I believe that we were able to deploy about 1,300 health professionals. And I think we had about almost 30,000 volunteers from like six different countries across the globe. During public health emergencies and disasters, I think many people are willing to help But it's a huge coordination of those efforts, not only across the federal organizations and the non-government organizations or agencies, but there's also volunteers who just come to the site and show up. And then that poses, I think, a burden on the emergency disaster site because these people just show up, say, tell me what to do, and they don't know who to report to or where to go. But I think we learned a lot from Katrina. We learned that the public health service played a vital role. We learned that our national emergency response plan needed to be updated. We learned that the federal requirements and the state laws had to be revised in terms of when the states reach out for assistance. 
And when the federal government could actually respond, there's laws that govern that, that had to be revised. And I think we learned that we really needed to deploy in teams that were prepared before an event occurs. And so it gave us the opportunity to increase the Medical Reserve Corps, which is a group of volunteers who are trained through the Assistant Secretary for Emergency Preparedness and Response Office. And then we also learned in the Public Health Service to be able to strengthen our readiness requirements and also our formation of ready response teams that could deploy within a 24-hour notice. Did you have any unique clinical scenarios that demonstrated a way in which the process of organizing the volunteers could be better carried out in the future? When we deployed people who weren't organized in teams, they had to get together, learn their strengths and weaknesses, learn how to work together, etc. So it's a smoother process when they identify and know each other. In Katrina, a lot of the healthcare systems, hospital records were destroyed. So you had sick people with chronic diseases and acute diseases, and nobody knew what their history was. And the only way you knew what somebody needed was there was a piece of tape on somebody's shirt that said what medications they were on because we lost their medical records. And this is an example where the patients who were veterans who had electronic records, they could be moved all over the country and they know exactly what their medical history was, whereas other patients just had a piece of paper that a family member or that they could communicate what their needs were. You've held multiple roles in the office of the Surgeon General in the Public Health Service, and you had the opportunity to experience a lot of things. What would you say are your maybe one or two most important leadership lessons during your time in the office of the Surgeon General? One of the things I think is change is constant, and it's always a challenge to keep adjusting, learning to live with flexibility, with ambiguity, and with uncertainty. I can describe it as the constant whitewater that you're trying to navigate. I think that focusing and trying to accept that being unsettled and uncertain is really the norm. And you have to stay focused in terms of trying to get through that. When I was in the Surgeon General's office, we had administration change. So a lot of the presidential appointee position to change. So there's a different philosophy on board. It's adjusting to unlearning the old and learning new ways of doing business. We had a transformation of the Commission Corps where we went from voluntary readiness, if you will, to mandatory readiness in teams and trying to organize that with limited resources. I think communication was critical. In the Surgeon General's office, there's 6,000 officers, but there's also all of the different agencies that we communicate with in terms of health. If you wanted to get a public health message out, you almost had to remember to repeat it seven times, seven different ways in order for people to understand because communication is part of what we do and I think 80% of the leadership role. So it's not only sending messages, but listening to people and listening to the resistance that people have to messages or the objections people have because there's a message in there too. So you've received quite a bit of advanced nursing education and have a PhD in nursing, and you've overseen the development of the Uniformed Services University Doctor in Nursing Practice Programs. Tell us about the need for advanced nursing education in the federal arena and what is offered at USU. First of all, nursing education has advanced because healthcare has become more complicated. The systems that we give care in are more complex. And so there is a need for increased education. 
not only about how to take care of patients and families and communities, but additional information about policy, implementing evidence-based practice, how to conduct leadership in a health system to enhance quality and improvement, the economics of care and population health. These are all characteristics that nurses have to be involved in, certainly in leadership roles. The development of advanced degrees, particularly the clinical doctorate of nursing practice, was implemented probably around 2008 and becoming the standard for advanced practice nurses. So at the university, we evolved our master's degree programs to clinical doctorates of nursing education. Most people aren't familiar with that degree because it's a clinical doctorate, whereas a PhD is a research doctorate. I can make the analogy in medicine. An MD is a clinical degree in medicine, whereas a PhD is a research degree in medicine or can be in medicine or nursing. So when we implemented the Doctor of Nursing practice, it was in response to that national trend to keep the military nursing sort of at the forefront of what the national trends were, but also to qualify our nurses to care for that future generation of complexity of care. When we implemented the program, we did it across all of our clinical programs. And at the Graduate School of Nursing, we have programs that are in response to what the military services require. So, for example, there's trauma and surgery in military services. And so we were asked to start a nurse anesthetist program and also to start a perioperative clinical nurse specialist program to care for those populations who require care and surgery. Because we have to keep a medically ready force and keep our troops healthy, the services asked us to start a family nurse practitioner program. Because there were increased women in the military, we were asked to start a women's health nurse practitioner program. And because there's certainly an increase in the silent wounds of war and the need for behavioral health care, we were asked and responded to develop a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner program. You now are the dean of the Uniformed Services University Graduate School of Nursing. And in that, it says Uniformed Services. So what is unique about the USU School of Nursing? What experience do the students get there that they might not get at a civilian institution? Well, first of all, we're a joint environment, and all of our students are military officers from Army, Navy, Air Force, or Public Health Service. We're a full-time program, and while we have to meet the accreditation requirements of all civilian schools, and we've been fully accredited for the 30 years that the program has been in existence, we also produce a unique kind of graduate, so we have to implement a unique kind of curriculum. So number one, we have what we call a signature curriculum, where all of our coursework is mapped to operational readiness. It's mapped to the unique aspects of giving care in the federal health system. For example, a history and physical for someone who's assimilating into the service is different than a history and physical that a civilian would get. Same thing with a retirement physical. Part of that signature curriculum is including and mapping all of our content to the cultural, political, technical, and environmental aspects of giving care in austere environments or on foreign soil. Secondly, we have to make sure that our graduates are ready to deploy when they graduate. So we have to give them twice as many clinical hours before they graduate 
twice as many that's required for regular accreditation in other schools. And then third, because we're preparing the next generation of military health leaders, the university is known as the Military Leadership Academy. And so we have to incorporate into our curriculum special courses in leadership development. And for example, three of our alum have reached the rank of flag officer. And many more of our alum have served as chief nurse officers or commanders, major MTFs as well. So we know that we're producing the leaders that the service needs. In the early 2000s and mid-2000s, when OIF and OEF were at its peak, your graduates would go out and be confronted with what they would actually have to do in a deployed environment. And so you could get that feedback and maybe make some changes or adjustments to the curriculum. Now, when that operational tempo is not as high, how do you know that your students are being prepared for what is going to happen in the next conflict? Let me talk a little bit about our operational readiness, our deployment medicine curriculum. So at our school, number one, we look at the clinical skills and abilities, the KSAs, that the services are defining not only for our students, but for all of their practitioners. And we incorporate that into our curriculum. Secondly, our curriculum is leveled in three areas. So first, all of our students, regardless if they're a nurse practitioner or a nurse anesthetist, everyone takes tactical combat casualty care. Everyone takes a course in advanced trauma life support. Everyone takes a course in battlefield acupuncture. Everyone takes a course in aspects of en route care and in behavioral health first aid. So that's a core. Then depending on the specialty, whether you're a nurse practitioner or a nurse anesthetist, there's specialty courses in operational readiness. For example, our nurse practitioners go to the Army Reserve training field in Indian Town Gap, Pennsylvania for a mass casualty field exercise where they are joined with the medical students. So we have an integrated interprofessional team. There's some pharmacists and clinical psychologists who participate in this mass casualty event. We have our nurse anesthetist going to the FBI hostage training center in Quantico, where they learn intubation for canines, as well as other combat skills, if you will, in healthcare in a combat environment. And then our clinical specialists take special surgical trauma training. And then our third level of deployment medicine, if you will, are elective courses where we have students rotate on the mercy or the comfort in austere environments in the Indian Health Service or in America Samoa or Lanai, where they get to practice care in an austere setting. And we have courses in cold and avalanche medicine or dive medicine where students can then practice their skills and train actually with some members of uh, special operations forces. So I think when we produce a graduate, when I say that, we produce a different kind of product because our curriculum is different. And we have had many students who come back to us and say, three months after graduation, I was deployed with special forces as the only nurse anesthetist. I was the only nurse anesthetist on a ship. I was the only healthcare provider in the theater of operation. So we know that that's where our students have to go. And that's what our responsibility is in terms of preparing them for those roles. So those all sound like great programs. What if someone's listening to the podcast and they say, I'm interested in applying for the School of Nursing and I'd like to have a unique curriculum 
that's different than, say, my civilian nursing programs? How would they go about applying? And is that different for the advanced nursing programs? We're a uniformed service university sponsored by DOD. All of our students in the School of Nursing are military nurses. So we don't accept civilians who are not part of the military. And the way our application process works is that, first of all, the military selects individuals according to each of their services criteria that they want to invest in leadership because all registered nurses in the military have a baccalaureate degree. So when they get selected for advanced education, it's for a graduate degree. After they get selected by their service that says, we're going to invest three years of time, or you're going to be on orders, you're going to get salary and paid as an officer. After they get selected from their service, they go through another screening by our faculty because they may be a great officer and a great leader, but they may not be academically qualified to complete a program. And our curriculum is very rigorous. It's three years full time. There's no summer breaks or semester breaks or whatever. So what I advise civilians who are interested in a program like ours, I encourage them to look into careers in the uniform services. Some of the services now are doing what they call a direct accession. When they join, they can actually then come directly to our school, but that's a service decision, not ours. So right now, there's a national nursing shortage, and COVID really hit things hard and negatively impacted the resilience and just the health of the nursing workforce. What do you see as the greatest need for nursing care in the next 10 to 20 years? If you think about the profession of nursing, nurses touch your lives at the beginning when you're born. They interact with your lives as you're trying to stay healthy, and they deal with end-of-life care. But I think maybe most importantly, most people interact with nurses when they're most vulnerable and when they're sick. So I think there'll always be a need for nursing. Yes, there is a shortage. We're concerned about that. A lot of the shortage is due to a shortage of nursing faculty because a lot of schools, I think they've turned away over 75,000 qualified students because the current universities across the country or schools of nursing don't have enough faculty to teach or enough preceptors in the clinical sites. Many of us in the nursing profession are trying to recruit nurses to come into this profession and to help develop nurses to become faculty. But the future of nursing, I think, will continue to be a career that actually helps people to address the human responses to health, disease, and illness. You can get diagnosed with a disease or diabetes or whatever, but it's the nurse who actually helps people live and understand how to respond and manage and deal with that condition and whatever the treatment is. So you can get prescribed drugs or treatments, but how do you take them? Do you have a refrigerator for your insulin? Do you have a support system that will help you navigate appointments and whatever? I believe that we're moving in healthcare to interprofessional care. No one discipline has all the answers. I think we're moving to a stronger partnership with patients so that they get more involved with their care. And I think we're also dealing with an increased awareness about wellness and prevention, because a lot of the conditions and chronic diseases that are overwhelming our healthcare system today are really preventable. And so focusing on the health, wellness, and prevention of conditions 
is really where the future of health resides. And I think while we have a good healthcare system, we don't have a good health system. And I think we're trying to address that. And nurses are leaders as far as Florence Nightingale. Nurses have been about promotion of health and helping people to live to the full extent of wherever they are on their health continuum. So let's say you are successful in convincing experienced nurses to become faculty and really have robust training opportunities. How do you motivate the younger generation, those people in high school, to join that team to provide that interdisciplinary healthcare and focus on health that you're talking about? How do you mentor that generation and get people excited about doing this? I think there's some stereotypes about nursing. People think that a nurse is someone who works in a hospital and follows doctor orders. And that's not what contemporary nursing is today. What I would tell people, and I love to recruit people into nursing because I think it's one of the best careers you can have. There's so much flexibility in this kind of career. You can have a variety of roles. You can work clinically. You can work as an administrator. You can work as an educator. You can work as a researcher. You can work as a project manager. There's so many roles and opportunities for nurses. You don't have to choose one throughout your career. I mean, I've done many of these roles in my one career. I've been an educator. I've been an administrator. I've been a caregiver. I've been a researcher. So you have a variety of roles in this profession. Number two, you have a variety of places that you can work. You can work in hospitals. You can work in communities. You can work in Congress or in health policy. You can work in schools. You can work with drug companies. So there's a lot of opportunities in this kind of career. One of the things that I also think is important is that nursing is one of the few professions that has the privilege of touching human lives and also touching people. The human touch in this environment that explodes with technology and impersonal aspects of our society. And I believe that people who are looking for a career look for something meaningful. And in a healthcare profession, you're touching people's lives and you're helping people. And there's a certain amount of satisfaction that comes to that that you don't necessarily get in other professions. There's a community of people. If you're a nurse, it doesn't matter where you come from or what role you play. There's a shared bond of our profession and what we do and how we work to improve people's health. What is the most memorable experience you have in your career in uniform service? I'd have to say when I was chief nurse of the public health service, I had amazing opportunities. One of the things that I valued most is I mentioned when you're chief nurse of the public health service, you're considered the chief nurse representative of the country. So World Health Organization every two years has a meeting of the chief nurses of all the countries right before the World Health Assembly. And I had the opportunity to represent my country with nurses from 90 other countries and interact and share what are some of the similarities and differences, what are our challenges across the oceans with this profession, and also work with the leaders of the nursing professional organizations, the American Nurses Association, the Irish Nursing Association, the Israeli Nursing Association, and regulators. Because nursing is a public service, and we respond to a public need. And so the need for regulation with licensures, et cetera, is to ensure the safety of the public. 
And so having those opportunities to work internationally with nurses and regulators was, I think, truly a gift and a memorable experience in my profession. So I'm curious, you were involved with one of the first electronic medical records and end of my medical school was pretty much the end of my ever paper charting. And when I came from medical school to the military, it was obviously electronic medical records. And now we're on an entirely new generation of electronic medical records. When you look at the medical records now and you think back on that first medical record that you helped develop, what goes through your mind? In 1990, the Institute of Medicine said everyone would be on electronic records. And then in the year 2000, the Institute of Medicine said, now we're going to have everyone on the electronic record. I believe now more people have electronic medical record systems. It's just there's reimbursement advantages to that and laws and regulations. So I'm happy that we're getting it to that point. But in some respects, I thought we would get there sooner. I think today's medical record has a lot of additional technologies, I think capabilities for the patients to interact with their medical records. I don't think we even thought about that 30, 40 years ago. I don't know, because NIH really, I think we were a little bit ahead of the game because we had a lot of the applications that some hospitals still don't have. So I guess I'm tainted in that respect. But I do think that there's explosion of technologies, not with the medical records, but with all of these electronic devices that interact with the medical records. It's this monitoring from home that interacts with your medical records. These patient devices or Fitbits that could help to self-diagnose and treat and add to your information. The email electronic communications with your providers and telehealth, I don't think we envision that. So I think it's not just the electronic record, but what it spawned in terms of additional technologies and devices that collect health information and make the patient more interactive in their care. We at WarDocs want to make sure that we give you a sincere congratulations on recently receiving the AMSIS Society of Federal Healthcare Professionals Lifetime Achievement Award. How has AMSIS membership benefited you over your career? I think AMSIS is a wonderful benefit. I've been a life member and I joined when I first donned the uniform. I think it gives you the opportunity to work in a joint environment and interact with people from all of the services military services, with public health service, and with the VA. So it's not only exposure to them, but also the opportunity to form relationships and share experiences. I believe that the educational opportunities are wonderful. They get better every year. This last session was just amazing. So I think the opportunity to learn and grow is good. And then I think it's just exciting to expand your thinking, not only about your profession, but you're interacting with a joint service and then joint professions. AMSIS has been an important part of my life, and I always feel invigorated and professionally renewed when I attend those meetings. And I think there's very few opportunities that exist where you have all of the military services coming together. You have the reserves and the regular corps. You have civilian and uniform people, and you have all the different professions. So big bang for your buck. So you've certainly had a distinguished career in federal health care in a variety of different experiences. When the history books are written 100 years from now, how would you want your legacy to be recorded? I would like to say that I've made a difference 
I've made a difference in either individual lives, in my nursing profession, and maybe even to some degree in the health of the nation or the next generation of nurses. I think I've been very privileged to be not only a nurse, but to wear the cloth of my nation. And I think that protecting the nation's health and serving with people who defend our nation's freedom, I mean, those are two very powerful missions. And if I could be part of that and maybe just make a little bit of a difference, I don't think anyone can ask for anything more. Well, we've been speaking with Dr. Carol Romano on Wardock's podcast. Carol, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And thank you for your service to this nation. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team War Docs on WarDocsPodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.